Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Everything you need to know about GP appraisals. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, so today we are speaking to Dr. Alison Rees all about GP appraisals. Um, she's got quite a lot of hats, um, which she will list herself because I'm not going to be able to get them all right. But um, it's really fantastic. She's really experienced and she's been an appraiser for a very long time, having recently just given it up. She's able to answer all our questions about appraisals. Yeah, we heard her talk uh, at the Health Education England First Five talk in Greater Manchester a few years ago and it really helped set us on the right track for our appraisals and take the sting out of it a bit. Um, so we hope it does that for you guys and it was a really good uh, reminder for us because I'm just coming up to revalidation now so <laughs> it's really <laughs> useful. Um, so we talk about why it exists and sort of a positive approach to them, um, advantages, disadvantages, just how to get the most out of your appraisal really. Um, she covers kind of the domains of, of different learning and CPD and different things that you need to do for each appraisal cycle as well as each revalidation cycle. Yes, exactly. And then she covers some of our specific questions about parental leave, special leave, what happens if you don't get on with your appraiser, um, things like that. Uh, so it's a really good overview. Um, apologies, it is quite specific to um, GPs within the primary care team rather than a wider podcast um, episode that we would normally do. But hopefully um, it's still of interest um, to a lot of you out there. Yeah, enjoy. Hello, good morning. Uh, I'm Alison Reese. Thank you very much for inviting me this morning. I have several roles at the moment. I am course lead for high professional education in the Northwest. I am currently the training program director for the GP training scheme at Blackpool. I'm an associate dean for GP international support. And up until a few weeks ago, I was an appraiser within the Northwest. Amazing. We love the hats, many different hats. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we're really happy to, to have got you on to be talking about GP appraisals. So if we start with initially, what are they and why do they exist? Well, I suppose the GP appraisals really exist as part of the GMC revalidation process. It's actually a way of us demonstrating that we meet the principles of good medical practice and ensuring patient safety. So I suppose that's the official reason why we do appraisals, but there's a lot more to appraisals than that. It's actually a way of being able to review our own practice in a supportive way. It allows us to not only demonstrate our quality, but it allows us to consider our own needs, think about where we've been, where we want to go and what's going to help us get there. Since 2020, everything about GP appraisal has actually changed. The focus now is more about supporting the GP and looking after the well-being of the GP as well. So that, so that is a real advance in GP appraisals over the last few years. And how has that manifested itself, Alison? I have, this isn't an extra question, but um, yeah, how, how has that kind of come to be? Uh, I think from COVID, when the doctors were actually struggling with COVID and the workload pressures associated with that. It was felt that maybe appraisal was a step too far with the workload and the time pressures. However, we felt it was important that there was actually a support mechanism for doctors. So the appraisal actually became that support mechanism so that there was some contact where you could discuss issues, discuss any problems. The actual appraisal itself has been made a lot simpler. There's now some new, a new format with the appraisal system, which actually focuses on that support and well-being. 
you have to write a lot less. In the past, people worried about appraisal because there was a lot of reflection that had to go on the portfolio. Now that reflection can be done verbally. So you can write some points on your portfolio, but you don't have to spend you know, many hours actually writing reflection. That can actually be achieved verbally during the appraisal process. So your appraiser would actually ask you the questions that would actually back up your evidence. So that's made things a lot simpler for people. Yeah, that's really brilliant. Um, and you have talked about a few of the advantages there, but are there any other advantages that you can think about um, for in terms of appraisals? I think as GPs, it can sometimes be a very lonely, a lonely job. Sometimes it's hard to be able to share things, certainly if you're working within a practice, if you've got any issues and just having that opportunity of discussing any issues, any questions, any queries you've got with a peer that's not actually directly associated with your practice or your local area can actually be really beneficial. The other thing with appraisals as well is as GPs, we often don't actually think of what we've achieved and it's only when you write it down or somebody asks you and you look back, you realise all the things that you've actually managed to do in the past 12 months. So that's a real advantage. And the fact that the appraisal is personal to yourself, it's your appraisal. It's actually a time where you get you get dedicated space to actually talk about what's important to you. And I think those are real advantages, especially with the appraisal moving its focus now onto that well-being. Yeah, it's lovely to have a bit of a step back and and sort of appreciate what's mm-hmm. happened over the last few years and and where you want to go definitely. And mm-hmm. um, what about disadvantages? Can you think of any disadvantages to them? <laughs> I think the main disadvantage is the fact it's mandated and people don't like being told what to do. I think that's probably the first one. I think historically people have worried about appraisal. They think it's a judgment. They think they're going to pass or fail an appraisal, which is definitely not the case, more so now. And there's also the time factor. GP is getting busier by the day and there is a time element of having to write something and actually put things in that appraisal, which is actually a negative. But as I've sort of said previously, things are moving a bit away from having to put lots and lots of evidence on it. So it is actually recognising the needs of working GPs. Yeah, that's good. I definitely think when it, when I started, it just felt like an extension of the the portfolio that we did as GP trainees. And then as time's gone on, it's got, I've written less and less on it, and it's less of a less of a burden and more like okay, I'm just gonna you know this, use it as a bit more of a log. Yeah, I think it's hard to get out of that mindset whenever you've been doing it for so long um, as a trainee and you've got to be so detailed and in-depth to actually like turn that bit off when you're yeah. doing reflections and things. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, and so overall, I'll ask a bit, of a bit of a wide question, but what are your advice and tips about how to approach the appraisal process? Well, I think approach the appraisal process in a positive frame of mind. I think the appraisal is not a test. It's not an exam. You can't pass and fail an appraisal. The appraisal is your appraisal. It's your opportunity to have a really good chat, a really good talk with a colleague who knows what you're going through, will have had similar experiences. And I would actually just be open, be honest and use it as a way of improving your whole well-being and allowing time to actually share things. I think it's just really important that, you know, as GPs, that we don't work in isolation and that we do share things. I would say as well, be prepared for your appraisal. Hmm. 
I don't mean write loads of stuff, but actually have thought about your PDP, have thought about what you might want to do over the next 12 months. And my one main bit of advice is as soon as you can engage using one of the one of the toolkits. Some people don't use any toolkits. It makes life more difficult. I know you have to pay for the toolkits, but they're probably worth the investment. So as, you, as you're approaching it, it'll actually guide you through the process. You'll be able to see what's missing. You'll be, be, be able to see very quickly what you need to do. And it just makes life a lot easier. Once you've entered a lot of the data in the first year, a lot of that then self-populates going forward. Uh, so what options are there for the toolkits? The two main ones that are used certainly in the Northwest, are 14 fish. And the other one is the Clarity Toolkit, which was the original RCGP one. I think it's now taken over by Agilio. So, but it's, it's the Clarity. So those are the two that tend to be used most widely. Some people don't use a toolkit at all and still just fill in, fill in the forms. But it is so much easier if you've got a toolkit. I certainly would say it's worth the investment. Yeah. And so what I know you said it's that it's not pass and fail, but <laughs> there, there does seem to be things that they want us to prepare for. So what do we need to do to prepare for a standard appraisal? Well, talking about the standard appraisal, it's probably useful to actually think about it in a th- three step process. And I'll probably start with the third step first and work back to the first one, if that's all right. So yeah. <laughs> the three the three steps of appraisal process are the inputs. That's what you take along to the appraisal. Then there's the appraisal discussion itself. And then the final bit of the appraisal is the output. And that's the responsibility of your appraiser. Now, the outputs are what's actually sent to the revalidation team which comes towards your revalidation. And the outputs are, they include a copy of your personal development plan that you've discussed at appraisal. There are some appraiser statements, and they are things like that you are following good medical practice, that it's reflect the whole scope of your work, etc. So those are the statements. And then the appraiser will send a summary of your discussion. Now, that summary is agreed with you before it's sent off. So if there's anything you want removing or adding, that can be done before you sign it off. And when the appraiser summarises your discussion, they summarise it in the four domains of good medical practice. So that's the knowledge, skills and performance, safety and quality, the communication partnership and teamwork, and then maintaining trust. So your appraiser will actually summarise that discussion using those four headings. Although when you're inputting to your appraisal, it's useful to have an idea of what might be in those areas. You don't have to do that. That's for your appraisal. They'll sort that out for you. So don't worry too much about that. So that's what happens. But in order for those outputs, you've got to put the inputs in to get those outputs. So there are a few things that you have to do for an appraisal. The first thing you have to do is you have to include your personal information. Again, if you're using a toolkit, that's usually populated year on year. So that needs to be contact details, your GMC number, if you had a lot appraisal when your last appraisal was. The other area that's really important is your scope of work. You need to include all the work that you do within the appraisal, whether that's paid work or voluntary work. So anything that you need a GM, your GMC number for, or you need to be registered with the GMC, needs to be included in that appraisal. So if you are 
a volunteer medic at the local youth football team, that would need to go in as well as any paid job. If you're an appraiser, that needs to go in. If you do any education, all things like that need to be put as your scope of work. You then need to fill in a section which is called challenges, achievements and aspirations. That's really useful. It's really useful for your appraiser to actually get that background, to just see what's been going on over the last year, to put everything in context. And to be honest, it really helps you as an appraisee when you fill it in. Again, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we will fill that box with challenges and it comes to achievements and there's nothing in there. You know, but I would actually say to the person I was appraising, well, you've had all these challenges and you've overcome them and you're here. That's massive achievement in itself. <laughs> so it's a really, you know, it's a really good way of actually focusing that appraisal discussion as well. Mm-hmm. You need to review your personal development plan. That is something that you have to do before your appraisal. And what I would say is don't worry if you haven't achieved everything in your personal development plan for the previous year. Don't spend 10, 12 hours the week before trying to find a number of courses that will actually meet one of the personal development plan items. You don't need to have covered everything. Everybody knows and the appraisers know they worked in GP. General practice is changing constantly. What might be a priority for you when you write that PDP might change within three months. Things happen in the practice. It might be that that just has been taken over by other things. So it doesn't matter what your appraiser will do with you at that point is sit with you in that appraiser discussion and say, okay, you haven't done it. Is it something that remains a priority that we can carry over to the following year? Or is it just not relevant to you anymore, in which case we will actually drop it from your appraisal? So please don't worry about ticking all the boxes. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose then the the bulk of what you include in your appraisal, if you've got time to write it, is your supporting information. And there's actually six main areas of supporting information. And this supporting information is over the five-year revalidation cycle. So during the five years, you have to show evidence of continuing professional development. And that needs to be in every appraisal every year. That can take many forms. That could be attending lectures, attending attending local conferences, practice meetings, locally held PCN meetings. It could be online courses, online learning. It could be reading. It could be just reflection. It could be something that's happened in the practice, a learning event. All these things can be included as part of your your CPD. Including podcasts as well. Including podcasts, (laughs) yes, definitely. Listening to podcasts can be included. Uh, so that's the first one that needs to be included every year. The second area is the quality improvement activity. Now, mm. the minimum requirement for this is one every five years. Now, it depends what type of quality improvement you use. It might be that your appraiser might suggest you do a little bit more, but the actual requirement is a minimum of one per five year cycle. In the past, people always assumed that this was a clinical audit and this was the part of the appraisal that caused caused the most stress, (laughs) actually having to do a complete audit cycle. Some people still do audits. 
if you love audit, do an audit. That's absolutely fine. Or if that's a practice need, put your audit in. It might be an audit that you're doing with, for example, if you've got a ST1 or 2 within the practice or a foundation doctor, it could be a joint audit that you're doing. But, get, you know, if you're doing an audit, that's absolutely fine. But there's lots of other ways of actually achieving that quality improvement Good. within the portfolio. A very popular one is case reviews. So a case review is if you've seen an interesting, interesting patient that you've gone and researched or you've discussed within the practice team, case reviews are always useful for putting in, in there. You could put any practice development as part of your quality improvement. If you are involved in developing maybe a protocol or reviewing guidelines in the practice, you might be within the practice in charge of actually reviewing the triage system or setting up something from scratch. All that comes into practice development. So any activity like that can be practice development. It might be reviewing your referrals, your referrals of your colleagues, looking at two-week wait referrals. All that comes into practice development and all that can be included. Mm. There's also research and teaching a lot of GPs now supervise learners from the practice at various different levels. Reflection on your teaching can be included. If you've prepared a lecture for medical students, anything you do like that, all that can be put in. And if you're doing any research, a lot of GPs are doing research, are doing other projects, then again, that can be included as your quality improvement. And the last one is one that actually can be really useful if you're a locum. I know it's quite difficult sometimes for GPs who are working in various different practices and they don't have have one base. Quality improvement can be quite difficult to achieve. And one thing that can can help that is the puns and ends, uh, the patient's unmet needs and the doctor's educational needs. Really useful tool for quality improvement. So include if you include some of those and reflect on them or reflect on them with your appraiser, that counts as quality improvement because it is learning from day-to-day -day practice. A lot of people have, either have a notebook with them in surgery or mobile phone, write a few things in. And that's something that can really help. One thing I didn't mention when we talked about the toolkits that's really useful is both toolkits have actually apps for your mobile phone. For example, if you're doing something like a puns and dens, you can actually put it straight onto the app and then it feeds your portfolio. And again, if you're at a conference or a lecture during the coffee break, write it in, go straight onto your portfolio. It saves a lot of time. But it's a way of actually recording that data. I didn't realise you could do that, actually. I knew you could put, like, on, in conferences and things, I have been putting some bits of learning, but I've not been doing puns and duns. That'd be really handy. Yeah, you can, you can add them on as quality improvement. Oh. So those are the main quality improvement activities. There is something about significant events, and that's you have to include every year if you've been involved in a significant event. Now, this has caused over recent years quite a lot of controversy. When is a significant event a significant event and when is it not a significant event? The rule of thumb now is that a significant event is what in secondary care would be called a serious untoward incident. So where there has been harm to a patient or potential significant harm could have occurred. My sort of guidance to my appraises, I tend to use the instance that if a third party are involved, then it's probably a, 
significant event to be recorded. So if it's something that has involved your medical defence union, the LMC, NHS England, the coroner, something, you know, those sort of third parties, then it's probably a significant event. That's just a rule of thumb. But I know a few appraisers use that as sort of the guidance of when they would include it as a significant event. What we used to include as significant events when it was something that happened that wasn't best practice, but there was no significant harm. We would either put that now as a case review or a learning event, but you wouldn't have to declare those within the significant event section of your portfolio. Uh, and the other thing that you need to include every year is if you've been involved in any complaints. So if you have been involved in any complaints, you need to discuss those with your appraiser. You might find there's years when you get no complaints at all, and you might get a year when you've got three or four. Your appraiser is not going to count your complaints. They're not going to be judgmental. It's all about what you've learned from those complaints, discussing them and what you've learned about them. And I would say, don't forget to put your compliments in. Yeah. We're very, we're very keen at including our complaints, and sometimes we forget to put our compliments. Definitely record your compliments as you go, go on. You know, it's great if the patient writes you a letter or a family member writes you a letter or you get an email. But ask your practice manager, you know, when somebody rings the practice to perhaps collate some emails if they've been phone calls, collate it on a document and keep those. Uh, the other thing as well, you know, patients sometimes, if they're grateful, they sometimes bring in a box of chocolates or you might get a bunch of flowers, you know, thank you for everything that you did. How do you record that in your portfolio? An appraiser once told me, do you my appraiser, which I've sort of passed on, take a photo on your iPhone and actually attach it as an image. I remember you telling us that, Alison. Yeah, the real <laughs> yeah. positive, yeah. you know, because it, it all adds up, doesn't it? Sometimes we focus on what goes wrong and not what goes well. And you can learn just as much from what goes well to do it again as to what's not gone so well. So those are the those are the four areas that, that you have to do. And then the other two areas that you need to do for your input once every five years is your patient, patient satisfaction questionnaire and your multi-source feedback. That's your colleague feedback. So you need to do those once every five years. If I can give you one piece of advice, don't leave them both till the last year of the cycle. <laughs> Because you can get caught out if there's sickness, if there's issues in the practice, then your revalidation date is creeping up and they've not been done. So I would aim to get them done by the fourth year so you've got that year buffer if you need, if anything goes wrong. Very wise. Yeah, the patient satisfaction one's a bit, um, it, it's a fair amount of faffing around getting either you can just give them an email one or you can you can get like a booklet of, of questionnaires for them to fill in and then send it back to to the your toolkit yeah there's lots of different ways some of the, the two, both toolkits actually have them attached you have to pay extra for them yeah there are some other ones some areas they've actually got ones that they prefer to use people use things like edgecom 360 but I know that the people that struggle with this are often people that are, that are sessional GPs or locum GPs. There's a really good booklet on the NHS England website. It's called Advice and Guidance for Locum Doctors and Doctors in Short-Term Placements. And there's some helpful hints on there of how to gather that information if you're actually not not based in one practice. Yeah, we'll get the link. Brilliant. Yeah, I can see that. So those are the those are the inputs. That's what you need to do to prepare for each appraisal. And again, some of them will be every year. Some of them will be once within the cycle. 
There are two other things that you might have to do on the occasion. Very rarely, you might be asked to bring some specific items to the appraisal by the responsible officer. Now, the responsible officer is the person that recommends you for revalidation. It's very rare. It usually would be if there's maybe a complaint via NHS England or some concern that needs to be discussed at appraisal. But you'll know about that. The RO will actually contact you before your appraisal will be asked to bring it. But it's a, it doesn't happen very often. And there's just one other scenario that might occur. And that is if you work less than 40 sessions per year in NHS general practice, private work, doesn't count. So if you do less than 20 sessions a year in NHS general practice, you'll also have to complete something called a structured reflective template. And that is just basically a form where you can say how long you've been working the reduced hours for, any other roles you've got that sort of overlap with the, the competencies and capabilities you need to be a GP. And also what learning you've done and how you're keeping up to date to ensure that you're still keeping the GP skills up to date. And then that's something that you'll discuss at your appraisal. Again, that's only if you're doing less than 40 sessions a year. So, yeah, that's a fair amount. When it's all listed, you're like, oh. <laughs> I, I say that's why it's quite easy. If you've got a, if you're using a toolkit, it's actually sort of talks you through it. It actually means you can't forget anything. And obviously the other thing that you do then within your appraisal is actually agree on your personal development plan for that year. And another hint I would give you is when you go into that appraisal, have some idea of what you want to do, even if you're not quite sure how to do it or what you're going to do, because then you can your appraiser will be able to help you focus what you want to do. You know, you could go in and say, say I want to learn more about sexual health. That's such a huge topic. And your appraiser might say, well, let's be specific. How can we just make that manageable? And certainly for PDPs, I would always say to people, don't stretch yourself too much. Don't be too ambitious. You have to do the working job as a GP as well. You don't want your next 12 months to be trying to work everything around your PDP. Your PDP has to fit in with your role. So keep it simple and don't overstretch it. Make it work for you. Yeah. Yeah, but definitely have an idea of what you want to do because the one of the worst things that can happen is an appraiser comes in, doesn't really know what they want to do for their personal development plan. You then end up deciding something with your appraiser and you go away thinking, oh, I didn't really want to do that. And then you're stuck with it. So at least have a general area where you'd like what you'd like to do. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so you've talked us through kind of what's needed for each uh, each appraisal cycle and You've also mentioned a lot of what we'd need for revalidation in terms of the multi-source feedback and the patient satisfaction questionnaires. Is there anything else that we'd need for revalidation? Not really. If you've actually undertaken the five appraisals within that cycle, then it should all be done automatically. Because mm -hmm. what you need is the continuing professional development, one quality improvement, significant events and complaints every year and your msf and your psq so that's it really if you do your appraisals and they've all gone through with no problem then there's absolutely no worry at all it just happens you don't have to do anything else what about safeguarding safeguarding yes you do need as part of your appraisal you do need to include safeguarding this is very confusing 
Yeah, how much of which adult and child and face-to-face and not face-to-face. I found that quite hard to find out about. Yeah. You need to do, the recommendation is that you need to, as a GP, be level three safeguarding. So you need to complete at the start of your training or near the start of when you become a GP, you need to be at level three. So you need to do the courses to achieve level three. Then after that, you need to maintain your safeguarding. Now, a lot of this will be done anyway because it's a requirement of CQC within the practices, as is your BLS. You will need to do your BLS, the requirement within that. But again, you should be doing that in your mandatory training for CQC anyway. Mm. So so the the safeguarding rules are on a three-year cycle, you should have eight hours of adult and 12 hours of child safeguarding over a three-year cycle. Now, that can be a mixture of things like e-learning. There's a lot of modules and things like Bluestream e-learning for health, FutureLearn. They've got adult and child at level one, two and three. And there's a lot of update courses on there. It can be face-to-face courses. I know a lot of PCNs and a lot of training hubs are now offering face-to-face courses. So anything like that would all count towards your safeguarding. Case discussions count, and that counts for the face-to-face element of the safeguarding as well. So that would be if you had a discussion maybe with a health visitor or with a practice nurse or with a school nurse about some issues, document those. Those case discussions will actually count towards those hours. Meeting other staff, you know, a lot of practices now have safeguarding meetings within the practice. You know, you don't obviously everything in the portfolio should be anonymized. There should be no patient identifiable data in anything you put in your portfolio. But a summary of what you've discussed at those those safeguarding meetings, again, that counts towards your safeguarding. Uh, And just reflections. It might be that you've read something or some reflections of other things or processes in the practice related to safeguarding. Everything like that would count. Thanks. Um, and it just occurred to me whenever we were talking about the um, appraisals and the revalidation cycle, um, how does it work with things like maternity and um, long-term sick leave um, and bits like that? Do you mind explaining that? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So an ideal revalidation cycle is five years, but you, within that five years, you can have approved missed appraisals. So that would be for all the reasons you said. So parental leave, sick leave, time out of practice for other reasons that were was approved by the but you'd need to let the appraisal revalidation team know and they would approve it uh for example during covid we all had an approved mr appraisal during that year so that's fine it might be that you go to your revalidation with only three completed appraisals and two approved mr appraisals but that's fine provided you've done your psf your your, your msf and your psq yeah. That's uh, just what I wanted to ask. Um, and um, does it then mean that your appraisal goes off cycle um, if you're, the timings are a bit weird or will it always be at the same time of year? You'll just have that approved missed one and then you'll do it the next year at the same time, but with all the evidence. Usually, usually it depends what your, when your revalidation date is. And it depends on your local area and your local team. This, you know, across the UK, it does differ in how people do it. Certainly this area, they tend to do it on your birth months. But it can it can vary, and for some reason, sometimes they do get out of sync. But usually, what would just happen? It would, you'd miss it, and then you just have it the next year. Okay. 
understand. That's fine. Thank you. Um, and then another big question that I think comes up a lot is, um, do you need to have certificates or any form of physical evidence to prove your CPD activities? No. It's not about counting. It's not about counting points. It's about reflecting on what you've learned. You might, you've probably got certificates for things like your BLS and probably level three safeguarding because the things that you need within the practice for the CQC. So if you've got certificates, put them in. But it's more about what you've learned rather than recording points. In the past, historically, we used to say 50 CPD points a year. Now we don't count points. It's all about what you've learned rather than it's a good rough guide. You know, that's the sort of level perhaps you should be aiming for. But we don't sit down and actually count the points now. Hmm. One thing I find is um, I find some courses that look really good and they cover all the points and they're, they're amazing. Um, but often they can be quite expensive as well as difficult to think about the time about doing it and um, any advice about how to cover our development um with that in mind i suppose there's certainly different courses i know there's lots of things on offer like there's lots of certificates with the universities and things are really good courses if you are applying for a course like that then i would actually put it in your pdp over a number of years if it's something that's going to take a few years don't try and do it all in one go chunk it and put a bit in the first year module in the second something like that uh regarding cost uh there are several schemes around at the moment there's the there's the new to practice fellowship there's the post cct fellowship schemes they offer within the learning within the schemes there's some funding for going on courses so that can be sometimes useful applying via the fellowship schemes depends what course you want to do there is some sponsorship i would say if there's something you really want to do an area you want to cover speak to your training hub locally maybe your pcn it might be if it's something that there's a clinical need within your area there might actually be some funding you could access there's no harm in asking yeah those are really useful um so you've mentioned about uh, advice for approaching the actual conversation that you have with your appraiser um, one of the big things being prepare and think about your PDPs. Any other advice about how to approach the, the conversation with them? Remember, it's confidential. Yeah. The only caveat to that is if there's anything that you disclose that might affect patient safety. It's the same, same as everything that we discussed. So that would be the only reason when confidentiality would be, bre confidentiality would be breached. And what would happen? The appraiser would just stop the appraisal and have a word with the appraisal lead. So... That I've never had to do that. That's never happened. But so it is confidential. Be open and honest. Your appraiser is there to support you. They're not there to test you. They're there to give you that support. Don't be afraid to ask them for help and guidance. If there's something you're not sure about, use their experience. Uh, and it's your appraisal. Use it to discuss what you want to discuss, what's going to help you. You'll probably find the majority of appraisers at some point during the appraisal, whether it's at the beginning or halfway through, will say, what will help you the most to discuss during this time? What is going to benefit you the most? So it's actually using it to put in the positive slant and think, right, I'm going to pick this appraiser's brains and ask them about what they feel about this. Am I doing the right thing? What would they do in this scenario? So, you know, it's there to be supportive. You know, if you're really struggling with something, either within the practice or with your well-being, speak to your appraiser. If they can't help you directly, they will be able to signpost you to get the appropriate help and advice you need. 
And they've often, you know, because they've speak to so many people doing different things, they'll know maybe what's out there. But you mentioned about courses. They might know of somebody who's done a similar course and got funding from somewhere. So there's certainly ways of, you know, it's certainly think of it as a positive. It's yours. You guide that appraisal to discuss what you want to discuss. Um, that's just made me think of a couple of other things just to ask there. Um, what is the etiquette in terms of contacting your appraiser throughout the year? Most appraisers would be more than happy for you to email them if you had any queries. You know, if you're not sure what to include in your appraisal or what you need, then send them an email. I'd be happy enough with that. Um, and then the other thing was just nature of being human beings. You might not always gel with your appraiser. There might just be a bit of contention there. Is it possible to change your appraiser? Yes, it is. At the end of your appraisal, you should get a feedback form. And one of the questions is, would you be happy to have the same appraiser again? That's fine. Yeah, there's no, you know, you can, you can change. You know, sometimes people don't get on, they don't gel. And it's much better that you have somebody that you feel comfortable with than, than actually be worried about your next appraisal. Yeah, you can change. Grant, thank you. Um, so you've highlighted quite a lot of good resources as we've gone along, but is there anything else that you want to point out to listeners that might be a place to go for help? Something which I find really useful, I don't know if you've heard of it, is the revalidation management system, the RMS. As an appraiser, I have access to this system. So when I have an appraisal, I can actually look at that and it actually gives an overview of what's missing for revalidation. But any GP can access it. You've just got to sign up for it. So just do a search of NHS revalidation system and you sign up with your GMC number. And then it's actually got a little colour coded box to say what's missing, what you've done each year. And it's really helpful. Very simple, very helpful. So I'd certainly recommend that. There's the Academy of Royal Colleges release a document. The last one was in 2022 and it's called the Medical Appraisal Guide. That is excellent. Loads of good questions and answers in there. There's also the RCGP. There's a lot on there about appraisal and one bit of that that's really useful is their Mythbusters. Mm -hmm. That's really useful to look at. Uh, again, I mentioned already the NHS England Advice and Guidance for Locum Doctors, but there's also the National Association of Sessional GPs. I think you have to actually be a member, but if you are a locum, it might be something to consider because they've got lots of useful helps and hints on that there as well. On the GMC website, of course, that's there and they've got a framework. So, uh, so just to wrap up then, Alison, we ask everybody what um, our uh, guests would like the listeners to take away from today. So what would be your big hitters? What do you want people to remember? I think the main points would be try not to be anxious about your appraisal. It's not a pass and fail. It's your appraisal. Use it for your benefit. Try and keep track of your learning as you go along. Use a toolkit and do your MSF and PSQ early. Excellent. Oh, that's, uh, that's nice and clear. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Alison. We definitely found this helpful. So, Lisa, that was amazing to talk to Alison again. Um, what, were your, what were your learning points from the talk with her today? I think it was just um, the nice spin that she put on it, um, the kind of thing that she said at the end as well. It's not a test. It's not an exam. Um, I definitely would have had that hat on 
um, going into something like this, it would have felt like I was going to, I need to provide all this evidence and they're going to go through it all and they're going to check that I've done everything right. And oh my goodness, it's this big dress, stressful mm-hmm. moment. Um, but I think just trying to reframe that um, for anybody out there that actually it's not a test. It's all about you. It's you use it. Um, it's for your development. Um, no one's going to say anything bad about you. No one's judging you. Um, it's supposed to be there to support you. Um, I think it was quite nice. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I sort of go through different feelings towards appraisal, depending on how close to the wire I am. <laughs> um, it sometimes does feel like tick box exercise, um, where you're just having to do things for the sake of it, particularly when um, it sort of comes down to the line and you're thinking, how can I evidence some of this safeguarding that I have done? <laughs> um, and that, so yeah, it, I think sort of trying to keep on top of it can be useful and sort of using it for reflection can be useful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that, that whole point about making it work for you. What do you want to talk about is really important. And what are your, you know, how, how well have you done and congratulating yourself for, you know, for getting through some of the really hard times and then thinking, right, okay, what do I want my career to look like and how can I get there? I think can be really, really good. Yeah. It's, it's hard to get that time to just think, how do I do it? And if you've got somebody sat there with, some some of the networking things or some of the exactly yeah advice about how to get there I think that can be so useful yeah exactly particularly if you don't have a like a dedicated mentor or something um you've at least got someone that is maybe a bit more experienced um or at least has the network um if, if you yourself are an experienced GP you can at least tap into their resources and try and find out how to get stuff done in your area because they definitely will know things yeah so yeah you're right yeah I I'm not one for naturally doing quality improvement projects at work and I think the fact that she named so many different types of quality improvement activities that aren't audits you know the case reviews yes. practice development in other ways or reflecting on teaching puns and dens I didn't realize fell into quality <laughs> improvement so that's going to be sort of more achievable but yeah thinking about how to potentially do quality improvement activities is always useful I think because it's nice to do once you've done it it's it's great to improve your life <laughs> can i can i make my working life better but it's hard hard to bite that off when you're in survival mode <laughs> exactly no that does make it a lot easier doesn't it and just generally her advice for um for the like locum sessional um gps things like that about how to get um bits like quality improvement done and also the document about how um to get things like msf and psqs and things done that link um all really useful resources that she's pointed out yeah so yeah thanks thanks to everyone for listening we really hope you got um, a decent amount out of that episode and if you've any questions you know where we are you can hit us up on the usual links and um, if you've been enjoying the episodes you can always um, like and subscribe with things apparently it does help people to find us so um, that really helps kind of share the message till next time I'm Primary Care Knowledge Boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.